0: Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman.
1: Today on the podcast, a visit with Edward Stanton, Stanton is a Professor Emeritus at the University of Kentucky in Hispanic Literatures and Cultures. He was at UK for 40 years. He is the author of 12 books, some of them translated and published in Spanish, Arabic, and Chinese. Since retiring from the University of Kentucky, Professor Stanton has published the novel Wide as the Wind, winner of the 2017 Next Generation Indie Award for Young Adult Fiction, along with three other international prizes. We'll discuss that novel as well as his latest travel memoir about Mexico and Spain. Professor Stanton has published political criticism and satire in several publications, including The Satirists. Ed Stanton, it's uh, an honor to have you uh, before our microphones and to read about your work at the University of Kentucky. And then after the University of Kentucky, it's almost... A new life for you but I'm curious about what brought you to Kentucky in the first place.
2: Well thank you Bill and the honor is mine to be here. I uh, had a choice between two job offers. One was at the University of California in Davis and one was at the University of Kentucky and i had lived in California for my entire life and uh, I really wanted to get away from family. <laughs> and uh, to start to start over, I was a basketball fan, of course. I studied at UCLA, which had a great basketball dynasty with John Wooden. I was fortunate enough to meet John Wooden uh, one time. Maybe we can talk about that later. As a child, I met John Wooden. And I came to another basketball dynasty, to UK. Hmm. And um, it, was a, it was a good choice, because uh, at the time I came, I had one son. My wife and I had one son who was um, three or four months old. So Lexington was a wonderful city in which to raise a child. Clean air compared to the smog of Los Angeles. Beautiful green spaces within 20 minutes. Wonderful hiking. Good school system, a university town. A nice-sized city. It was wonderful.
1: But you didn't do any surfing in Kentucky.
2: No, I didn't do any surfing, and I... I think that's probably the one thing I missed most of all was <laughs> the ocean and the power of the ocean, the magic of the ocean. Uh, because, as you know, I, I come from what I call a surfing dynasty or a surfing inheritance and now in four generations. So my dad was one of the early surfers with the so-called longboards those long, very heavy, dangerous boards that really were weapons. I and mean, if you got hit on the head with one of those things, you were out and gone. He surfed the big surf in, in Hawaii and up and down California. And he taught me, and I taught my son, and now my son is teaching my grandsons. So it's, it's a wonderful, it's more than a sport, it's kind of a passion. And that feeling of being on a wave and riding it at the moment when you have to be totally concentrated and focused on that precise moment. And you know that no matter how perfect the wave and the ride is, and that exhilaration that comes from speed, water, wind, air, sun, is gonna be ephemeral, it's not gonna last long. So it's a wonderful way also to learn how to live the moment most intensely, which I think is a good lesson for life. So I definitely missed the ocean, but uh, would manage to get back to California two or three times a year for, for surfing. Also, some surfing on the East Coast, which can't match the West Coast as far as surf. Um, but other than that, um, Kentucky's been a wonderful place to live, to raise children, and uh, I can't see leaving it anytime soon.
1: You found a um, a real home here, and I'm sure that your teaching career, 40 years, uh, was a big part of that. You enjoyed that immensely?
2: I did, uh, and that's the one thing I do miss uh, f- from the university from working actively uh, are the students but of course you have friendships with students and especially the graduate students um, they continue their careers you get to see them since they're in the same field at, at conferences um, and uh, so there's still many friendships uh, that, that that linger last and grow with time but um, Yes, I do miss the students. I do miss the, uh, the challenge of meeting a new generation of students every semester. But, um, you know, I still live in Lexington. I still am on campus quite a bit. I still use the library. I stop by and see my colleagues occasionally. I meet new students. Um, I have some friends who are current students. So, yeah, it's nice to live in a university town.
1: Not that your uh, life uh, stopped, certainly not, um, in 2012 when you left the university or left your profession of uh, teaching, Uh, but it's almost uh, as if you really, truly turned over a a page uh, and started a a new life doing many things, many interesting things. Uh, That will lead us into a discussion uh, about uh, your your writing, uh, that you are doing, uh, prolifically now and, and doing, uh, uh quite a bit of, and you have another hobby that we'll talk about uh, a little bit later. Uh, so tell me, what was it about, um, uh, 2012, uh, were, were you one of those that had planned out your, your post-professorship, uh, your, your life, uh, in, I hate to call it retirement because, um. None of us that are uh, close to that age like to use that word, but uh, repurposing or whatever the the term might be. Tell me, uh, did you you plan for that or did it just come to you naturally?
2: It came naturally. It more or less happened. I did not have any grandiose plans for retirement. I knew I would continue writing um, because writing can be a compulsion. And I, I think it is, you know, people often ask in, in interviews when a new book comes out, they ask, Well, do you ever suffer from writer's block? And I said, My problem is not writer's block, it's verbaria, or excessive use of language. And my problem is not not being able to write enough but writing too much and then having to go back and, and, and edit. Um, so that 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 had never been a problem. But I had visited uh, not too long before 2012, Bill, I had visited Easter Island, which is probably one of the most remote inhabited places on Earth. It's about uh, 2,000 miles from the coast of Chile. It's about uh, 1,300 miles from the nearest island, Pitcairn Island. And um, I was so absolutely taken by that island and its history, its story, that um, The idea uh, of a novel about that island um, occurred to me, and I thought, well, surely someone has done this, because Easter Island is is not only a a, a marvelous place to be in, and of course it has this famous statuary, the famous moais, these um, enigmatic, uh, immense stone creatures, I think some way up to 60,000 tons, that are staring out at the sea. Where do they come from? How do they move them? How do they transport them you know, with no metal instruments, and no wheels? And that it has a kind of archaeological interest, but there's also the, um, the environmental or the ecological interest because this is a perfect example, S- scientists call it a kind of a test tube of how a people can destroy a habitat or how a habitat can be destroyed. And the island became deforested over a period of several centuries. And a question that some um, archaeologists have asked is, what would the man or woman have thought who cut down the last tree on Easter Island? Probably had no sense of an ecosystem, probably had no sense that trees supported the soil. They kept the soil from eroding, and they supported bird life, they bore fruit, um, they served, uh, the, the wood, the lumber served to build boats. So without, with the soil eroded and your, your agriculture declines and decays, without the protein source of birds, nesting birds and eggs, without the wood, the lumber to build boats, <coughs> these people started going hungry. And because their other source of protein was um, fish, deep sea fish in the Gulflands. So it's a story of how in just a few centuries, a small island can be um, deforested and uh, its habitat basically destroyed and made un- uninhabitable, so much so that the Easter Islanders resorted to cannibalism. So I thought that this story was so much uh, um, a tale for our time and uh, such an incredible story that surely someone would have written as well as the Geographical and the archaeological books and tracts and articles A novel, an historical novel, based on this uh, this situation And I couldn't find one in any language So I thought, well, that's something I, I'm going to try to do
1: Why did you choose uh, to write a novel? And uh, we will learn in a few minutes when you're talking to us About it being a... Um, an adult, uh, a young adult uh, novel. Uh, now, that, that genre has defi- uh, different definitions as far as the age group, uh, but I'll just ask you, because I don't know, uh, uh, Why Does the Wind uh, is written for what age group?
2: I wrote it as a, a novel for everyone, really, not thinking of children, uh, not thinking of young adults necessarily. And um, you know there are a lot of books, Bill, that have been written for adults that have ended up being children's classics. The Adventures of Tom Twain, is it? Mm-hmm. Uh, of Mark Twain, mm-hmm. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain yeah. is an example. Huckleberry Finn is another example. Um, so um, it was only after I'd finished a first draft and talked to my agent, when the agent said, you know, this really could be a novel targeted to a young adult audience because it has a message for. A young generation, an environmental message that is very powerful. And there's a certain simplicity which I tried to achieve. I tried to give the book a kind of a tone of um, an, a primitive epic tale which meant a fairly simplified structure, simplified syntax, uh, trying to kind of evoke the, the early wonderful epic tales of, of many cultures. And um, so the publisher, when the book was published, finally decided to call it a book for all ages. But then when some people who were 10 and 12 started reading it, many adults read it too, they said, this book is, is too hard for us. It, 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 it's too tragical. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the publisher uh, decided to change the, the, I think we decided for age 12 and up. Mm-hmm.
1: Did, did, uh, was it your first work of fiction?
2: It was my first novel, but it, I had written short stories before. Mm-hmm. And okay. I had written poetry, translated poetry, mm-hmm. translated fiction, short fiction. So I really mm-hmm. felt this was not a genre that was totally new to me. Mm-hmm. And really, the, the novel is a novel genre. That's why it was called a novel in, by the Italians in the 16th century, because it's always new. It's always regenerating itself. It has really no limits or, or definitions. Um, so um, it was not hard. Uh, to, to, to do it. I will say this though I believe it's much more difficult to write fiction than it is to write mm-hmm. non-fiction. Because when you write non-fiction, the subject of your research or the world is set. It's set forth. It's a given, right? When you create a world of fiction a, a novel you have to establish that entire world and everything in that matrix or that system has to be perfectly consonant. Perfectly, um, without contradictions, perfectly in harmony, and that includes every single detail uh, of uh, of people, of a place, uh, of a landscape, uh, of a culture, and uh, that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. That is hard to do.
1: Give us a an example, a sample uh, of um, of the novel, and you're going to read a passage to us. I would love to. And um, let us know a little bit about. Um, what you've written.
2: Okay. Uh, this is a passage from Why does the Wind. It's not too long. Uh, and when I learned about Easter Island, um, I also did some reading on um, environmentalism. And there was a scholar named Lawrence Buell, American scholar, who uh, created a term uh, that was the environmental imagination. And I tried to imagine... What could the people of Easter Island, who, Easter Island is, is called Rapa Nui by the inhabitants, <clears throat> what could the Rapa Nui people have done to save their island? They were 2,000 miles away from the coast of South America. They were 1,300 miles away from the, newest island, the nearest island. What could they have done to reforest their island? Well, the only thing they could have done would have been to sail to another island to find another island that was not deforested, find the seeds and the saplings and the shoots and the small trees and bring them back. They were marvelous navigators. After all, the Polynesians discovered every island in, in the Pacific Ocean, in most islands in the Pacific Ocean over a period of hundreds of years, navigating by the stars and by currents. They had no metal instruments, no navigational tools, absolute the National Geographic has called that the greatest adventure in human history, comparable to uh, reaching the moon. Um, so I, using this my own environmental imagination I thought the only thing they could have done would have been to sent, send out an exploratory voyage to f- find those seeds those saplings, those shoots and, and small trees and bring them back to reforest the island. So that was the basis of the story. But uh, it also, uh, like most good stories, most good novels, uh, has a, a love story in it. Uh, and um, there's kind of a, uh, a battle between clans because one of the things, the things that happens when a, a, an environment de- declines is people begin to compete for resources. It leads to conflict, to war, to, to clans and whatnot. So that's the background for the, the, uh, the passage I'm going to read. So the protagonist, his name is Miru, Uh, He's a young boy, 15 years old, has led this voyage and found another island. And on this island, he is absolutely stunned and marvels at the landscape, which is rich and full of trees and and fruit and streams and rivers and mountains. And um, he comes upon a grove of trees with what now um, arborists are calling a, a mother tree. A mother tree is one of these giant, let's say a redwood or a western white cedar, a sequoia that is an ecosystem in itself and it supports hundreds of kinds of life, insects, um, (coughs) um, birds, um, uh, reptiles, uh, uh, etc. This is his encounter with one of those mother trees. He came to a clearing where rays of sunlight slanted through the mist. Mito raised his eyes and beheld a vast, arching tree, wider than a whale and taller than a hill, whose crown was circled in clouds. Every branch, twig, and leaf sparkled with rain. The tree looked like a giant waking from sleep, stretching its arms where birds darted in and out of the foliage, banking, diving and trilling songs. That whole creature thrummed with life. Walking on tiptoes as if he were approaching a slumbering god, Mito stepped closer. Then he lost his shyness and felt drawn to the tree like the birds in its branches, the ants swarming on its bark, the crawling things around its roots. He extended one arm toward the trunk, broader than the beam of the twin-hulled canoe. Like the skin of an animal, it was alive to his touch. Mito stroked and caressed the grooved bark. He tried to embrace the tree, but his arms failed to gird the trunk. He dropped his hands, knelt and laid his head on a root, thicker than his thighs, where he fell asleep. When he awoke, the mist had gone. The tree was rustling with more life. Insects buzzed, birds dove, fluttered and chirped around it. Thrusting back his head, Mido could view the whole creature now. He saw its top shining in the sun, towering into a sky as blue as the water beyond the island's reef. Some old branches, fat as tuna fish, were charred by lightning, but new limbs had sprouted from the blackened spots. Never had he seen a stronger, fuller, or greater thing.
1: Beautiful. And... um such vivid uh, description. Thank you. Um, that's not the only thing you've written, of course. Uh, 12 books, uh, but included in that, let's step back and and talk about uh, The Road of Stars to Santiago. Um, and quite an adventure uh, in itself, and maybe more so uh, that you took the time to record and write it. So tell us about that book.
2: Road of Stars to Santiago uh, was published by the University of Kentucky Press and it's based on a um, 30-day, 500-mile pilgrimage that I made in the uh, early 1990s. And um, as as a Hispanist, as a scholar of Spanish life and and literature and, and language and culture, I had been reading about the Road to Santiago decades for a long time I'd been on it partly um, in by car, bus, train but never walked on the road and riding on trains through uh, northern Spain I'd seen these creatures, these strange creatures with, with broad brimmed hats and uh, with backpacks walking with this pilgrim staff and I always thought they looked like creatures from another planet uh, I didn't know I would become one um, but at that time, um, I, I was having a, a difficult time in my, my marriage. Uh, my career seemed stalled. I luckily had a sabbatical leave coming up, and I don't know how the idea popped into my head, why not walk the road to Santiago? And um, I did a lot of study, a lot of preparation, and uh, <clears throat> started out in, in the, actually in the French Pyrenees, on the French side of the uh, the, the Pyrenees Mountains walked one day in, in France and then the other 29 days in Spain all the way to the Atlantic Ocean <clears throat> and it was uh, one of the most um, memorable and um, powerful experiences I, I've ever had You were alone? Well that's an interesting question Bill because you know our image of the pilgrim is of someone who's alone mm-hmm. right, and um, you know, a penitent, because in the Middle Ages we know that mm-hmm. people did pilgrimage in penance uh, or to have their sins uh, f- forgiven. Yeah. Um, so uh, I started alone, but nobody ends alone on the road because you meet other pilgrims. And it's a marvelous experience, hard to describe, but there's always plenty of time for solitude and meditation and thinking and um, remembering, learning more about yourself as you walk, absorbing the landscape. But there's also time for fellowship, and you can have as much or little human company as you want. So you'd often meet a pilgrim on the road and talk for five minutes, but we had a different pace in walking, and one of the keys of pilgrimage is you must walk at your own pace, because your own body has a pace that no one else's does. You can even physically hurt yourself if you don't walk. If you try to walk at someone else's pace, so you say, "Okay, I'll meet you in the town of Santo Domingo. I'll meet you this evening, and we'll, we'll have a drink together. We'll have a dinner together, whatever." Or there's a pilgrim refuge three kilometers ahead on the left. Let's see if we can find a, a bunk there, and we can spend the night there. Uh, so you, there was plenty of time for fellowship, and it's a moving, living creature. The way you would see people, re-encounter those people, miss them, lose them, maybe not see them forever, and then eventually see them again, or often see them again. Uh, A fascinating phenomenon. So uh, it was both the, the richest experience I've ever had as far as solitude, meditation, knowing oneself, and also one of the richest experiences I've ever had as far as meeting new people and having new friends
1: was it the bomb uh, you needed for your soul
2: it was uh, at the time but um, you know no um, no bomb is permanent right not even the bomb in Gilead right Uh, I don't think Um, so um, I often found myself wanting to go back on the road but it's hard to carve out 30 days in, in one's life to do that Um, But I was lucky enough in 2000, I'm sorry, 1998, to have a a group of wonderful students um, who were the the Gaines uh, Fellows and the the best students on the UK campus. We had a class probably, what, 75 yards from where we're sitting Mm -hmm. now in this studio. From our
1: office, yes. From from your Um, office. From Maxwell.
2: And um, we walked the the last... um, I believe it was 200 miles of the road together. We studied pilgrimage and the title of the course was Pilgrimage in Sacred Space. We did that during the uh, spring semester of 2008 and then we spent part of the month of May in Spain traveling and walking the road. It was hard to keep up with (laughs) 20-year-olds at the time.
1: Well, I'm ready to to sign on also. Um, I I have had some friends. I've read about it uh, like you did. Uh, I, I do know that uh, there are uh, ways and methods that sound a little bit uh, less uh, strenuous maybe than you. And I, I, strenuous is not the right word, but you're walking the entire way. But uh, there are companies who will plan out for you uh, your stops every night to, to be sure that you're fed well. And then, uh, But you still have to do all the walking. Right. Uh, you still have to put in the steps, uh, as they say, uh, until you reach whatever and the, you, you choose to, um, d- did you have that k- kind of operation at that time where people would uh, in, uh, carry your luggage for you or anything like that? Was everything on your back?
2: When I walked the road alone at first, it was the old way. I, I didn't have that service at all. I was 44 years old. I was, mm-hmm. I was hale and hearty. Yes. Um, but when I went with the students in um, 1998, we did have uh, some friends, some Spanish friends who were pilgrims, of course who had uh, a couple of Jeeps, and they would t- take our luggage yeah. e- every morning to the next pl- place, Pilgrim's mm-hmm. Refuge. Sometimes it was an abandoned church, an abandoned school, uh, or a Pilgrim's Refuge where we, we would stay. So that was good, and uh, it freed up the students really uh, a, a lot not to have 50 pounds on your back.
1: Would you do it again today?
2: Uh, I would do it again today, but I would uh, do it with the, the kind of service you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and probably I would... Uh, probably not stay in pilgrims, refuges, I might stay in pensiones and small hotels, that kind of thing. And, you know, Bill, there's this idea of the authentic pilgrimage. Well, any pilgrimage is authentic. No matter how you do it, if you do it on foot, on bicycle, and there are a lot of pilgrims on bicycle, by horseback, um, even by bus or by train, it, it, it all depends on what you need and what you can do. And, you know, people talk about, well, it's just the real road to Santiago. In the Middle Ages, People just walked out their front door and and started heading towards Santiago, right? So um, there are definitely certain routes, like uh, coming out of France into Spain, there are some roads that converge into what became known as the French Way or the Camino Mm -hmm. Frances, because most French pilgrims followed that way. But any kind of pilgrimage, no matter where you start, no matter how you do it, no matter what your means of transportation, is authentic for you, so I think People feel guilt when they tell me, oh, I, ha- I had this service, take my luggage to the hotel, and it was a very nice hotel. doesn't make any difference, right? It's your pilgrimage.
1: And you uh, then, of course, um, wrote your uh, your travel memoir, uh, uh, your travel log, uh, uh, and, and it was well received too uh, by some notables, I might add. Uh, you might want to tell us about your... Uh, James Michener e- experience uh, uh, but but tell us uh, uh, th- was that your first uh, travel I'm going to call it a travel log. was that your first diary of your trip that you that you'd ever attempted? Uh,
2: it was the first uh, <clears throat> I would call it a travel memoir is a good good um, <clears throat> a good term, I think it's a kind of a subgenre of travel literature. Um, the road of stars was, yeah yeah that that is true. Uh, however, I had written a book about Hemingway, Hemingway in Spain, a few years before that, which is called Hemingway and Spain, a Pursuit. And what I did was to follow Hemingway's footsteps throughout Spain. And at that time, that we're talking about the late 1980s, there were still people who knew, had known Hemingway, who remembered Hemingway, who could tell good stories about Hemingway. Um, so that's always been, um, you know, kind of what I'd like to do is to combine s- solid scholarly writing with the personal experience. And um, so really, The Road of Stars was kind of a continuation of what had started before. And the later books, like the Travel Memoir, mm-hmm. Vidas, Deep in Mexico and Spain, is kind of uh, the culmination of that.
1: Uh, the notable uh, was talking about uh, uh, the, the Mitchner uh, mention uh, about what an extraordinary uh, story it was, and and uh, I'm sure that high praise uh, um, was was good to hear from someone of his stature.
2: It was, and it was a handwritten letter that he wrote, and he was ill at the time. He would die soon after that, but uh, very gracious, mm-hmm. and I, I cherished that letter and cherished the, the words that he that he used to describe the book?
1: I'm talking with uh, Ed Stanton, who is a professor emeritus from the University of Kentucky, and since he left the the university, uh, he has uh, been uh, quite the writer and and traveler and uh, um, a man for all seasons, uh, and in many ways. So when we come back, uh, we'll uh, talk uh, about uh, the the latest, uh, or one of his latest works, and uh, a couple of more things before we finish. If you're listening to the Think Humanities podcast, I'm Bill Goodman, he's Ed Stanton, and we'll be back after this uh, wonderful word from our friends at Spalding University.
0: Spalding University's low residency MFA in creative writing offers outstanding instruction in a supportive literary community. Study across genres, explore the interrelatedness of the arts, travel to Paris next summer, for short-term study abroad, or stay at Louisville's historic Brown Hotel during week-long residencies on campus. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spaldingedu forward slash writing, or email Writing at spaulding.edu. Ed, uh,
1: tell me about um uh... the work that was published uh... in uh, j- just recently in uh... in 2020, uh... uh... Uh, 20, uh... was it 2020 or 2021?
2: 2021 just in March.
1: 2021 just in March. Uh, Avetis uh, deep in Mexico and Spain and uh, how how did this come about uh... and um, uh... you're going to read a little bit from it. Tell us about this book.
2: Okay um... The the book really was born in 2016 with the presidential election. And you remember that, that administration, the new administration, um, the very first pronunciation, the very first um, political event was the famous speech about how Mexicans were rapists and criminals and whatnot. Build a wall. Yes, build a wall. And um, I found that the more I heard and read About the way Mexico was being demonized, I I thought, "Wait a minute! I know this country." And yes, there are drug cartels, and there are terrible drug wars, and there are areas of Mexico that are not controlled by the national government, which is not a failed state, Um, but it uh, it, there are parts of the country that does not control, and. So I decided to write uh, this travel memoir about my own experience in Mexico. I was brought up in Los Angeles. My parents were both born in Los Angeles, a city founded by the Spaniards in the 18th century, a city with the most musical name of any city in the world. The Spanish name for Los Angeles is Pueblo de Nuestra Señora, la Reina de los Mm. Ángeles, town of Our Lady, the Queen of the Angels. Um, so there were, there was that Spanish background, the name California, the very word California comes from a Spanish novel of the 16th, maybe early 17th century, and it means warm oven, cali, cali, warm, uh, and, uh, forno, uh, oven. Um, so there was that background. Uh, there was a, uh, Spanish-speaking population, mostly Mexican-American. I went to school with, with, uh, uh, Mexican American children. I was fascinated by their the differences in their their language, their home life, um, and uh, I, I lived just about two or three hours away from the Mexican border, so I could travel to Mexico, Baja California, and I became interested in the bullfight and started reading whatever I could find, like James Michener mm-hmm. and, and Hemingway uh, on the bullfight. And I was taking Spanish classes, but I was not terribly interested in, in the classes. But I started reading whatever I could find in Spanish about the bullfight. And in, a, in a, a few years, I realized, Bill, that I've learned Spanish, but not in the classroom, combined with talking to my Mexican-American friends, combined with trips to, um, to Baja California. So um, then when I was 16, I went and uh, studied for a summer in Mexico, hitchhiked all over the country from one end to, to the other, from the Pacific to the Gulf Coast, from the northern border to uh, Chiapas and Oaxaca to the Mayan country, with a Mexican friend, and um, you could do that safely at that time, and um, got to to know the country, know know the people, and probably I got to know it geographically and culturally better than my own country, in some ways, but we also should remember the words of Nietzsche who said, to know your own country, you need to leave your country and go and be in another country and then come back and see your your own country. So I was learning about my own country, too. So I started writing the book in 2016 about Mexico, uh, about my experience in Mexico as as a young man, kind of a rite of passage in in, in many ways. And um, then in um, early 2020, very early 2020, Europe and especially Spain was hit very hard by the coronavirus. And for the first time in my adult life I realized I cannot travel to Spain, the country that was kind of the source of my professional life and writing and research and and friendships. And I decided well the two largest most populous Spanish-speaking countries in the world are Mexico in the New World and Spain in the Old World. Why not bring in Spain at this time into the book, and uh, so I started writing the Spanish part. So the book had a real um, human urgency to it, the political element of the Mexico being demonized by the Trump administration. Then the, the coronavirus, which all of a sudden closed the borders of this country where I was used to going back and forth. Uh, so it had a real um, <clears throat> kind of um, uh, hook, you know. I, I felt writing the book there was a real energy there that, uh, that drove me through the, through the book. And uh, so that's the story of, uh, of how it was written.
1: R- read a passage uh, from this latest work.
2: Okay. Um, this is going to be very short, pr- probably shorter than the last passage. It's hard to choose a passage from a book. And at the end of the book, I did something that Ernest Hemingway did at the end of, I think, maybe his best book on Spain called Death in the Afternoon, a book about Mm -hmm. the bullfight. And at the end of the book, Hemingway, in this beautiful epilogue, uh, said there are many things that I did not write about Spain in the book. And he, in a very brief, succinct, and moving way, he simply suggests or alludes to the people, the places, the experiences that he did not put in the book. Almost as if to say there's really another book here uh, about Spain, or, or many books. And the Spaniards talk about Las Españas, Spain. So there's really much more than one Spain, because it's a country with four or five different languages uh, s- spoken, and uh, geographical regions that have a variety that um, are, are stunning, You know, from foggy, misty, um, Celtic part of the, the country in the north of Galicia, to sunny Andalusia, um, <clears throat> to the Mediterranean coast to the mountains, um, snow-covered mountains. Um, You know, Spain is the second uh, highest country in Europe after Switzerland. People don't realize that. Mm. So what I did at the end of the book, Bill, knowing that there was no way I could have included all of Spain in the book, I kind of followed what Hemingway did to suggest what I did not put in the book at the same time suggesting that might be another book later on, or these are the things that uh, now you can go back and read the book and realize this is just a partial story, right? So I'm just going to read the first few paragraphs to give you an idea, and our listeners and you will not recognize some of these names of people. That doesn't make any difference. Uh, the, the idea is uh, the sense that these countries are so, um, so vast and so rich and so deep that um, all we can do is simply allude to certain experiences. We cannot capture you know, the vitality, the power uh, uh, of Mexico or Spain. This section is called After, because it's, it's like an afterword. This book does not show the good surf at San Onofre, San Clemente, Santa Monica, and all the beaches of Alta California with sonorous Spanish names. It does not tell what happened to Tijuana, Ciudad Juarez, Matamoros, Nuevo Laredo or Piedras Negras, along the world's most drastic border, the one place where an Anglo-Saxon country stands face to face with the Hispanic world. It does not show how they ravaged those cities, what happened to Alfa and her son Nasario, growing up in old TJ. And what became of Concepción? Lolo, Laura, San Audio, Cubales Carnales, Quionda, Quionda. The book does not have the whales of Baja California, the luminous waters where the desert slides into the sea, or the oysters in Muleje, each one a perfect mouthful, so fresh we ate them in the dangerous months, chased with salsa bandera, the colors of the Mexican flag. It does not tell about lying with second-degree sunburn on damp sheets under a fan in Loreto, and nobody's felt heat unless they've been there in high summer. Or talking with Rosalinda on her balcony in Saltillo when the world was still young. ¿Cuándo vienes de nuevo a platicar, Eduardo? When will you come and chat again, Eduardo? Watching Popocatépetl veiled in smoke as you stood on the pyramid with Alicia, Alejandro, and their boys, the family who helped you know Mexico will abide volcanoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, drugs, its own governments, the United States, and more.
1: Beautiful. Again, it almost makes uh, one think that those are the things that you don't write about. So what you have written about is enticing enough to... Uh, I don't know you could ever suggest on the book cover that you read the epilogue uh the afterword first and <laughs> then go back and be right. be so interested in what you wrote. So right. so um uh congratulations on that one too. And Ed uh, you um have also since uh you left the university uh, developed a um, a love of the bonsai tree right. and uh would that be your 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 uh, most recent or latest excitement in life?
2: <laughs> um, or craziness, <laughs> I, I don't, because no one told me that it is a, it's a very jealous passion. It requires a lot of time, a lot of dedication. It's very hard to leave them and to travel.
1: How do you describe a bonsai tree? If, if people are listening to us and, and they've never seen one or... They might have heard of the name, but, but how would you describe, uh, without having one here in front of us, the bonsai?
2: Yeah, bonsai in Japanese simply means tree in a pot. So in general, it's a tree in a pot, but it's usually a tree that is a small tree in a pot that one can carry usually from one spot to another. So the idea is what the Japanese tried to do, they tried to create in miniature the image of a tree in nature, but smaller. And some people think that bonsai trees are dwarf varieties, Uh, very few are. Most of them are the same trees you see in the forest, or you see on the streets. A ginkgo, for example, our our city has a lot of ginkgos as decorative trees uh, on streets here. I have a ginkgo that's uh, about uh, two and a half feet tall, with beautiful golden leaves right now, this time of year they all drop overnight, the, the same they do for the ginkgos in, in our city. Uh, and if I planted that, my ginkgo bonsai tree, in the ground, it would also grow to be 30, 40, 50 feet tall. So the, the key is, how do you keep them small? And The the key is you repot them every several years. So the tree never has a chance to grow roots in the earth, for example, the soil, endless roots in search of moisture. and you trim the roots when you repot, and you trim the tree also. So the tree is getting the message, I cannot be a giant tree in the forest. I must be small because I have smaller roots and a smaller crown.
1: Did the Japanese have a certain philosophy, uh, ancient, uh, I'm sure, uh, story uh, that that first developed uh, or what they brought along as the bonsai uh, tree revolution uh, all over the world, and, and to, you have 22 of them, did you tell me? Right. Um, so is there is there some um, uh, mythical uh, uh, Zen-like uh, philosophy that goes along with the growing of the tree?
2: There definitely is, but like most things or many things in the world, they come from the Chinese. The Chinese were, were doing bonsai, it's called penjing in, in Chinese. Centuries before the Japanese, but it was the Japanese who refined the art because it definitely is an art Um, Some bonsai teachers say that bonsai is about 80% horticulture and 20% artistry because if your tree is not alive, you cannot be an artist, right? So that's that wonderful combination unlike painting sculpture and uh, other Mm -hmm. arts. It's always changing Mm -hmm. so there is uh, the, the Japanese have developed it and it definitely flourishes at the same time as the uh, as, as Zen and, and Buddhism in, in Japan, especially uh, later centuries. And it's very much in consonance with the Japanese aesthetic of wabi-sabi, which means beauty in simplicity or beauty in what is kind of unfinished or unpolished or natural. So what you try to do with a bonsai bill is to create a tree in in miniature that has the signs of age and of a creature, a tree that has weathered heat, cold, wind, ice, snow, the elements, weathered time, and is aged with grace and dignity. They grow
1: both inside and, and outdoors?
2: Mostly outdoors, but there are some tropical mm. and subtropical varieties that you can have indoors, but they're all happier outdoors.
1: So e- e- in the winter, uh, even here in Kentucky, they they, they flourish. They, they won't dive.
2: It's a complicated question, but if my hardy trees like pines and junipers, I leave them outdoors unless the weather gets below 25 degrees. And then, of course, since they're in a small pot, the roots uh-huh. can freeze much yeah. easier than sure. a tree in nature. Mm-hmm. So then I... I call it the bonsai shuffle. I move them into a potting shed or the garage, mm. but as soon as the weather gets above twenty-five, I move them out because mm-hmm. they're like wild animals. The wild animals are not happy in a cage, right? They mm-hmm. need they need the air, mm-hmm. they need the, the breeze, the wind, the sun, uh, the, the humidity of uh, the outdoors. And
1: uh, I believe you also uh, shared with me. There's only one um, uh, formal group uh, in Berea that uh, is a society of sorts. Uh, t- tell me just about that?
2: It's a a group of five strange guys, really, (laughs) more more than a society. Five um, people who are very passionate about bonsai. And they include a a retired lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Army. Uh, They include a retired professor of um, um, (coughs) botany from Eastern Kentucky University. They include um, a man who worked for the railroad in Louisville. Uh, they include a man from, from Richmond who trains police, the police. And they include this crazy uh-huh. retired professor, right? So we meet about three or four times a year in Berea because uh, at the Berea Bonsai Studio, it's the only bonsai garden in central Kentucky. So we meet three times a open year. Open to the public? Uh, the the garden is open to the public. It's yeah. It's right off I-75. Um, it, Tim Weckman is the name of the owner. Huh. He has um, about 2,000 trees priced wow. you know, from $10 up to uh-huh. several hundred dollars. Um, so it's a wonderful, interesting. very interesting... Sort idea.
1: of like a uh, a male book club, except this is a tree club.
2: That's right. And it, a question is, why have women not become more yeah. interested in bonsai? It's a question the Japanese have not been able to answer. The Chinese have not been able to answer it. I cannot answer it. But there are... Now, there are more women interested in bonsai and some bonsai professionals yeah. who, who are women more than ever before.
1: Uh, Ed, uh, to sum up here, um, or not to sum up, but just to ask you, um, what are you working on now? Uh, what an interesting life and uh, adventure you're having. What, what's, uh, what's, I, I know you, you've got something going on besides the trees. How do you know that? Well, just because you you don't uh, seem like uh, 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 the idle workshop uh, uh, metaphor works with you too well.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, No, I am working on uh, uh, not working, playing with a novel because I don't think writing is work; It's, it's it's play in in the serious sense. After all, Freud said that the most serious thing that children do is play. They learn about the world through play, right? And I think all forms of art are are playful in, in the very best sense of the word. So I'm finishing a novel. I don't like to talk about work that I'm working on or playing with until it's almost over because I think it's, it can be, you talk so much about the work, you don't finish it, you don't write it. Um, so it's a novel about the, um, the so-called dirty wars in Argentina in the, the late 70s and 80s uh, where thousands of people disappeared or, or were killed or whatnot. You had this military regime. And um, but it's also a love story, uh, and uh, it's I would call it a political theory cum love story. And then I have a few other secret projects that I won't tell you about right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, always
1: leave them wanting more, <laughs> right? And so maybe you will uh, come back and visit sometime. I would love to, Bill. Thank you, so Ed much. Stanton. Uh, thanks so much for being our guest on our Think Humanities podcast.
2: Bill, thank you so much, and I will uh, quote. Gertie um, Norman's words in the last podcast you did to, to thank you for everything you do to hold us all together in a community of people who love the human and the humanities. Thank you.
0: Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.